and welcome to River Writers, a production of the Writers Guild of Astoria, a 501c3 nonprofit supporting writers and the literary arts in Astoria and the Lower Columbia region. I'm your host, Marianne Monson. River Writers airs on the second Monday of every month at 9 a.m. and provides a chance to peek behind the curtain at the craft of writing. What makes writers tick and what do they know that might help the rest of us? My guest today is local author Susan Banyas. Susan is an experienced writer, choreographer, and teacher with several decades of experience in these fields. She has created numerous full-length dance and theater collaborations, as well as many experiments with language, physical, and visual poetry. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Marianne. It's good to be here. So great to have you. Yeah. I'm so excited to talk to you about your work and particularly about the process that you do to bring your work to life. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you describe your work as a hybrid form of both movement and writing, right? Would you say that's true? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's so intriguing. Can you explain a little bit more about that form for listeners who might not be familiar? Sure. Well, um, you know, people learn different ways. I learn through my body. I learn through movement. And um, so I really started out training in movement and, um, and dance back in the experimental days of the 70s when people were doing happenings in New York and you know so my teachers were were hybrid teachers already I mean the Mm. people I mentored with were were showing up in with painters and doing happenings and uh, creating composite theater with language and image and so I I, and poetry is basically looking at the um, world of creativity through the lens of the poet and um so that's how I started was was experimenting with movement phrasing and then adding words and um, pretty soon I wanted those words to have some kind of grounding and and narrative that was located rather than just um, random mm-hmm. um, and um, and so that sort of launched into more of the storytelling with movement form mm-hmm. so that's. That was sort of the evolution, and then, um, and then that carried on into texts, and then I started writing short essays, and that was like, well, I could stage an essay, you know, and uh, so I tried it, you know, I, I went to an academic conference, and um, I thought, I'm going to stage my, you know, my essay on everyday dancing, you know, and I did with my collaborator, David Cherry, so it was a composite music monologue movement piece and the academics loved it so I was like oh this this works (laughs) (laughs) so it kind of helped launch that I also did a a piece um, I guess it was the really the precursor to starting more writing was the um, um, piece that I did on my great-great-grandmother and in effect trying to emulate her the quality of her writing. She was a Quaker. Hmm. And her diary entries in this diary I found from 1864 when she was noting the strangers coming and going at the farmhouse in Ohio 
which I took it to some scholars, and they said, yeah, she was on the Underground Railroad. Wow. Yeah. That, so that was um, <clears throat> an important, that was finding her diary and, and having that verified. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, the, you know, there was, there was talk of it, you know, and, and local, yeah, that was a hiding place from the Underground Railroad, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and I believed it, but I wanted it verified. That's amazing. Yeah. So how did you how did you find that journal in the first place? Through my beloved mother. Um, when I was in doing graduate work, I um, my thesis was, what is originality? Hmm. I asked the question, what is originality? And um, started to um, take um, anthropology, visual anthropology, some classes that looked at culture and documentary art. And I thought, you know originality is is where your voice the origins of your voice where were my origins and I went back to Ohio and that began that process but that was in the early 80s and and mm-hmm. my mother said mm, uh, you have to go meet um Catherine Ingersoll you know she's the archivist in the family so she took me there and Catherine had this a farm woman a, a history teacher a, a, just a beautiful soul and she had all these artifacts stuffed in this closet you know and she came out with this little diary and she said this was your great great grandmother's diary wow and i and i i held it in my hand and i thought wow and she said and she was she and her family were on the underground railroad and their farm was two miles away and we'll go over there and um and I just, it, it was like I was thunderstruck by the idea that I actually was a part of history. Yeah. Through this artifact. So that's so it been... connected you to your own origins yes. as well as yes. centered you. It centered me into, context. yeah. And, and she was an activist mm-hmm. and she was, a, and her diaries, um, here's, here's her voice, January 1st, 1864. I arose this morning 12 minutes after 5, found it middling cold, thermometer 12 degrees below zero, blowing strong. Mm. No strangers here, but Adeline sewing at Maria's dress, men sitting around too cold to work. So that was that diary entry, and the strangers were fugitives heading to Canada. That's so so beautiful. So I'm curious, what connections did you see between her voice and your own? Were there familiar aspects to it that... There were. I mean, I don't... I mean, I, I emulated her in the sense that simplicity, location character it's all there yeah everything is there all narrative is in is compacted into that that entry and and she was I I work a lot with movement and I also work a lot with photography so Mm -hmm. is and and painting so visualizing things but she painted a picture of the farm I could see it in her words in her words yeah yeah her words just were like little paintings every single Mm -hmm. diary entry was a painting of that time and so I thought I want to do that you know so I built this piece around that diary and then added my own my own language based on um you know historical research and so on and so forth 
Um, but I tried to stick with that simplicity of form. Yeah. You know. So do you think learning about her identity and who she was helped you, in a sense, define your own identity? Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. I mean, when you have somebody that clear and committed to the exercise of freedom, who was willing, you know, to to be on the Underground Railroad at that time um, was precarious because Mm -hmm. even in the North, you know, um, there were fugitive slave laws on the books. Federal marshals were out on the roads and they were hunting down fugitives. And if, if you were harboring a fugitive uh, and you were subject to federal law and prosecuted and could lose your farm and so on. And of course, if they caught fugitives, they would transport them back to the masters or kill them or mm. you know it was it was a really rough time yeah so um she was taking an incredible risk they she were taking really risks yeah and the whole family and there you know there was a network um that was they were part of a network yeah. um, a biracial network that was set up but it was really it's kind of like how cells work now and uh, it's it was very underground truly in the right. sense that they would only know about the next maybe two farms mm-hmm. ahead of them, and that was it. Yeah. Yeah, it was for their safety, right, to preserve. They couldn't prosecute them. The whole network, they, yeah. They preserved the network that mm-hmm. way. So yeah. consequently, it was always hard for scholars to get information on what, who was actually, what was actually going on there. So you found this incredible mm-hmm. document. You discovered your origins and her voice and then started to add your own voice around it. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Well, I did in that piece. I mean, I had been, you know, voicing texts, you know, yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in, you mean to talk about that particular piece or just kind of shaping the voice around? Yeah, your um, writing process. My you writing know, process. How you went about, me. yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a choreographer, um, you know, I, I arrange things not unlike writers do in little scenes, but I call them scenettes because they're short moments. So um, my writing practice is to capture moments, um, and then, and then once those are captured, then I can arrange them any way I want, the way you do choreography. So yeah, there's certain phrases of movement uh-huh. with certain words. And then you start to um, arrange all that into a composition um, where it's it's moving around in space and um, and creating certain images. So I in thinking of the whole, then I go back to the writing and refine that from from that base yeah. or let it go further. You know, yeah. often it's I have to write more and more and more and more and more and then find the moment. You know. Yeah, I think. Um for for many people, the connection between writing and, say, music mm-hmm. is pretty obvious and clear. Even the connection between writing and visual art with illustration. Mm-hmm. But to say there's a connection between writing and dance seems a lot less <laughs> intuitive. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of fascinating <laughs> to hear how you connect the two and feel like there's an interplay there. Well, I think the connector... And I guess this goes back to the the diary and, and this whole body of work in Ohio is and and, and the methodology that I, I developed um, and teach 
um, which is to locate um, oneself within an image. Mm-hmm. So the image becomes the universal language. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I worked with David Ornette Cherry, the musician who did the beautiful sound score for this piece and also the Hillsborough story um, and other work, um, but when we started out, I had no idea how to communicate with this guy from Watts, who was this like jazz and world music guy. And and I thought, what should I do? How should I explain this? And so I sent him an image mm-hmm. of the creek near my grandmother's house in the winter um, because the fugitives escaped during the winter often and came up the creek beds so that the dogs wouldn't, the bloodhounds wouldn't trace them. And I just sent him that image of this snowy creek, and he totally got it hmm. and started writing this music. Wow. Now, how does that work? And we're yeah. both always kind of amazed, and that's how we tend to communicate mm-hmm. um, through physical and visual images. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. You live so it. You, you, you feel it. So, you know, you probably do this when you write, Marianne. You, you know, mm. you have to sort of feel the characters, like, how do they sit? What do they, yeah. you know, what's their, how do they move? What's their um, character, you know? Um, yeah. I think uh, the part that, I guess, connects the most with me is I heard someone once compare writing scenes within a novel to little pearls like Mm -hmm. each one is self-contained and then you put it on a string to make a necklace out of it right that's like the through line so all of them are connected in some way but separate yes yeah it's just like that yeah and then with spatially um I don't know why but the geometry of action somehow helps me and I think other people who have that kind of mind organize mm-hmm. um, scenically. Yeah. Um, and um, and then in in the process I teach, there's always a a gem, a a, a pearl, mm-hmm. um, a key image at the heart of every scene. Mm. It might be the pair of shoes, or it might be the the em- emerald ring, or you know, in your book. I mean, yeah. it might be. Um, so that's often I start with a, a chapter title or a scene title with the central image, and then mm. that helps organize it. Um, and then once the image, it's very much like filmmaking, mm-hmm. actually writing this way. Yeah. Like you're the camera person, you're the cinematographer. You, right. You know, you're also the witness, and, and then you drop into the action, and then you're in the action. So it's kind of, it's kind of like in and out. Well, I, the other thing I love about it is I think – much of my favorite writing is really visual. As you said about your great grandmother's diary, it mm-hmm. helps you. It's like a painting, right? Mm-hmm. So it allows you to see. And also as writers, writing requires us to see. Yeah. Yes. So look closely to pay attention. Right. To ask ourselves, what am I looking at exactly? Mm-hmm. Um, so for listeners just tuning in, you are listening to River Writers, a production of the Writers Guild of Astoria. And I am your host, Marianne Monson, and I'm speaking today to local author Susan Banyas about her writing process. Susan, I want to switch gears a little bit to ask you about your most recent book, The Hillsborough Story, which the subtitle is A Kaleidoscope History of an Integration Battle in My Hometown. 
So it does seem connected thematically with that previous work that we were talking about uh, to some extent. Can you tell us a little bit about this book and what how it came about? Sure. Thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. It's a, a <clears throat> it takes place a hundred years after the No Strangers piece in the same county, um, Highland County, Ohio. I was eight years old when I witnessed what what I witnessed outside my window, classroom window, um, African-American, well, Negro mothers, they were called them, Negro mothers and children, were marching with signs outside my classroom window. Mrs. Mallory was reading a Charlotte's Web, and we were, um, every day these women would show up, march, leave, come back the next day, march with signs. What were they saying? Why couldn't they come in? What was going on? They were from a, the other side of town. Where did they live? Who were they? So all these questions, and why was there so much anxiety? Why was no one talking about it? So this key memory took hold. Mm. And like many memories, it just hung out there until I started, it started calling back and going, hey, you know, don't forget me. And I started gathering a few more details. And so the book is really about that journey to take that single memory, go back to Hillsborough, find the women outside the classroom window. Um, the mothers, there were th three of the mothers still living at the time when I started, and their children, who are my age, um, find the people in the memory and start to find out what was going on in their lives. So it was like going through that classroom window and seeing who was peopling my memory, mm. you know. So it was this thing of, and that's the integration part. It was like, whose narrative is this? And, um, you know, because I have my narrative, which is only of an eight-year-old. Now I have a narrative of going back. And, um, and they have their narratives of all of it and... So it's, it's started to be a kaleidoscopic kind of uh, approach to how history is written, which I did on purpose because I did not want a, quote, dominant narrative uh, telling the story. It's too complicated. The story of race in America is, uh, you know, is, is like, you know, in protest and civil disobedience and these things that, w that were going on are... are are difficult because there's so much repression of those stories in the community. That's community had repressed that story. Mm -hmm. So um, when you went back to find the women, were they open to talking with you? Yeah, I, they were. Um, I, I, a, a young woman had done a series in the local paper on this March. So she turned me on to one of the women who was pretty central to the um, community and uh, one of the matriarchs in the community and she said yes she would talk to me and invited two other key people uh, women and the four of us met for the first time and that was really the beginning and they became my my allies in this process and 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 then they'd say hey you need to go to you know you need to talk to Nate Jones in Cincinnati you know he he's a civil rights guy well he was a federal judge and mm -hmm. Or you need to do this. And our lawyer was Motley. Her name was Motley. You know, and, and I was like, Motley, Motley. You know, well, Const the uh, late Honorable Constance Baker Motley, who was a mm. key 
civil rights attorney was their attorney in, in, in the Court of Appeals. So they would, they had these like, you know, so it was like following these clues and it was a wonderful way to learn history. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, I was soaking up as much as I could from scholars who were writing about it, which when I started, it was, it, there was, there was, there was plenty of scholarship, but boy, now there's a plethora of scholarship on, on all these issues, you know, yeah. on, from many angles. But then I was kind of, you know, tiptoeing toward how do I do it as a white person? You know, how do I write this and respect the voices of the people, but also, and also respect my journey as, you know, as, as a, a person seeking, you know, a voice through my own memory. Mm-hmm. In other words, it wasn't just research and somebody else. So, so that, so the book is really unpacking all of that and that battle in my hometown the characters in it and how it ties in how it was how it was backed by the cold war was the whole backdrop to this thing and what that meant and it gets into some heavy stuff in the part two of the book which is more of the backstory and um and it brings it forward to now you know and the issues we face today so that's great um i have a quote that i would love to read from the book You say in there, I leave Hillsborough, but Hillsborough never leaves me. Spirits tag along like we're on our way to school, kicking fall leaves, colors flying around and rearranging themselves. Could you talk a little bit about that quote? Do you want to elaborate on it a bit? um, Sure. Well, I think that thing of, um, well, John... The um, the late John Lewis uh, said, uh, "Don't believe he was a U.S. representative from um, Georgia, uh, civil rights leader." He said, "Don't believe what they tell you in Washington. Be stirred by the spirits of history." And um, that mm. caught my attention. And I feel like the spirits are with us. And the, and I mean by spirits, the ancestors. Mm-hmm. You know the 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 good the good. The, all the spirits, but you know, you call in the good spirits and, um, and they're around. And I felt like with this story, I've always felt this with this story that it basically has called me back. Yeah. And so it's a soul retrieval. I mean, to, in, in that sense, you know, um, when you're, when your world is somewhat shattered by circumstances and to see, I, I feel like to see violence against other people is a form of trauma. Mm-hmm. And to, 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 you know, to dismiss people that violently, uh, psychologically, yeah. which was happening in my hometown. It was segregated and there were all right. these rules and social rules and belittling and just all the stuff that goes on. And children pick up on all of those tensions. You're, you're all you do. In some ways more, I think. Yeah. Just because they lack the context and the prescribed narrative about it, right? That's exactly mm-hmm. right. There's no story. Yeah. And so it w- I was kind of this, whoo, you know, and then um, those spirits, uh, you know, as I went back, I thought, oh, this is what, you know, and I, and I physically had to go back to physically experience the the place over and over again to be able to feel those street corners that school those smells that those places you know where 
where things took place. I call it the memory place. So um, that's what it's about. It's about, you know, and then, and then you rearrange it once you find it again because it's a whole new set of memories. So mm-hmm. as Faulkner said, the past is never over. It's never even the past. Right. Your work deals a lot with themes of memory and remembering on both the individual and the community levels, right? Yes. Why is that such an important motif for you? Memory is a language, like dreaming is a language. And we dream in images. We don't dream. I mean, there might be words. You know, people say things in dreams, maybe if you remember them. But mostly you have scenes, you're somewhere, something happens. Um, memory is like that. And really, it's, it's really at the basis of our imagination. Mm-hmm. So, and the, and the Greeks called Numosyne, the, the goddess of memory, the, the, she was the big kahuna. She gave birth to the nine muses. So, you know, um, it's at the core of right. creativity and imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you And it's a political tool. Absolutely. The shaping of memory, the intentional crafting. Totally of a political tool. Yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah. So, going along with that, you say on your website, I believe that creative practice is essential to the understanding of self in relationship to the natural and social worlds. What do you think creative practice offers us collectively and individually? To to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. Um to um, stay anchored in our own reality rather Mm -hmm. than be drawn into virtual land to um, to keep nimble in terms of how we approach problem solving and conversation it's like you know having you starting this radio show you know it keeps the community alive in a in a a new way and it's a creative practice of conversation to me art is kind of is pretty functional that way yeah I don't do art for art's sake you know it's like it's it's really functions on behalf of the community and Mm -hmm. I and the community functions on my behalf so that I can practice I think it's so fascinating how artists gravitate towards each other. That's a huge part of my experience in coming to a story, why it immediately felt like home, is I felt like there were people who really valued creative work. You didn't have to explain it. Uh-huh. So I think in a lot of the world you do. Like, yes. what's the purpose of writing a poem, you know? Why aren't Obviously you on Broadway not to yet? to get rich. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, but it is amazing the way that it feeds itself like Mm -hmm. it and it feeds each you know the artists feed each other like the work itself feeds us personally and collectively and I think you capture that really beautifully in that statement oh thank you yeah so I think it's essential to well-being yeah it is and our our society is really hungry for it hungry and I also think it's the fastest way into problem solving that's a really beautiful thought yeah Well, thank you so much for joining us today on River Riders, Susan. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for joining us as well. I have so enjoyed this conversation about your work, about its importance, and about your fascinating methodology that is is quite unique and inspiring. And thank you, Marianne. It's it's just been a pleasure talking with you. And I just want to do a shout out to the Guild. It's been such a great resource in Astoria. And um, keep up the good work if you don't know about it. 
Marianne will give you more information, but it's um, it's a great resource for learning, growing, community, writers in this community. Thanks. The Writers Guild of Astoria is a 501c3 nonprofit organization serving writers in Oregon and Washington. More information about the Writers Guild can be found at thewritersguild.org. More information about Susan Banyas's work can be found on her website at susanbanyas.com, and that's B-A-N-Y-A-S. Until next time, keep the words flowing and your pencils sharp. I'm Marianne Monson for River Writers. Mm-hmm.